0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reeve Podcast. A quick disclaimer before we begin. Certain words used within this podcast do not represent the views or opinions or beliefs of the participants involved. The words are used in historical context. Thank you very much and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reeve Podcast. Today's guest is the author of Lucky, a novel from Oh, lucky, sorry, no, Lucky a Novel. That is the full title. And she is all the way from Chicago, Illinois, in the United States. Her name is Christina Parrow. Welcome to the show, Christina. How are you doing?
1: Thanks so much, Christian. I'm great. How are you?
0: Good, good. Obviously, off camera, we were having connectivity problems there. Uh, I, I've been yes. having a, a lot lately, to be honest. It's very hit and miss just in podcasting in general. It's,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, but we're, we're here now. I've
1: been hearing- yeah, I've been doing a lot of Instagram lives lately too, and I've been having some similar issues, technology, pros gotta, and cons.
0: Yeah, i got to say, ever since uh, Instagram was acquired by Facebook, it's just been trashed the whole time. Just awful. It never never no. used to have these problems before it was acquired. <laughs> Same with WhatsApp, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a coincidence, I think. Not. Yeah. But uh, right. anyway, enough about that. Let's go straight to you. So, um, yeah, what can you tell us about your novel? Uh, what's it about? Like, I know, but in your words, please tell yes. us what it's about.
1: <laughs> For sure. So Lucky is inspired by Taylor Swift's album Folklore and the incredible true story of standard oil heiress Rebecca Harkness. So it depicts the intertangled web of, of stories. Uh, it's... I part of the book, half of the book, is about a pop star named Rhea Harmonia, and the other half tells the story of Rebecca Harkness, um, starting from her grandfather, who was a Confederate soldier in the Civil War, and then all the way through the tragic demise of her children. And for those of you who don't know, Rebecca Harkness married into the Standard Oil family, which was Rockefeller's company, and, uh, She, a few years after she married into the family, her husband passed away and she inherited all of his money and at one time was the richest American woman. And so she was able to live her life however she wanted. And she did. She was, she sponsored Joffrey's original ballet. She was great friends and, you know, sponsored a lot of the art of Salvador Dali. Um, she just lived a fascinating life and a life that a lot of people wish that they could live like. Um, and I think that her story is just a beautiful picture because it ends in tragedy, and I think the opposite side of the coin for greatness oftentimes is tragedy. and so I was kind of exploring that in my novel both with the story of Rebecca. And then I was also telling the story, like I said, of Rea Harmonia, who is a pop star who kind of gets elevated to the peak of fame and fortune. And, uh, you know, she's at the top and she realizes that life isn't as good as she thought it would be up there. She thought that, you know, if she was a good musician and got awards and, you know, was selling millions of albums, more people would like her and that her life would be better because of it. And she realizes that's not the case. So she uses Rebecca's story and little clues that Rebecca leaves behind because Rea Harmonia ends up buying a house that Rebecca Harkness lived in. And so she finds some clues that Rebecca left behind to help her answer some existential issues she has in her life
0: awesome yeah I got, I got a lot of questions but I suppose the main one I want to kind of go with and it will sound really ignorant and obvious but I think you'll know where I'm going with this um, what was actually your kind of motivation for writing this book
1: yeah so I was working in a nursing home during the pandemic and I was just seeing a lot of tragedy in the world around me and Uh, tragedy related to the collective idea of the American dream. And so as I was dealing with that, um, Taylor Swift's album came out, Folklore, in July. And I really dove into her lyrics to try to make sense of the chaos that I was felt like I was surrounded by. Um, and so I was inspired by her song. Taylor has a song on the album about Rebecca Harkness called The Last Great American Dynasty. Uh,
0: that's the connection. There it is. That's the
1: connection. <laughs> so I was interested in this character. There was a biography written about her right after she passed away. That's really hard to get your hands on. Um, I think you can buy it right now on Amazon for $999. I found it at a circulation-only library, downtown Chicago, luckily. Um, So I had access to this story that I knew a lot of people were interested in, but not many people had access to. So that's that's legit.
0: It was actually nearly $1,000 to buy.
1: (laughs) Yes. (laughs)
0: Why? What? <laughs> Why?
1: Because there is only one edition ever printed of it. And ah, okay. it's a rare book. And so when books are rare, supply and demand, the price See, ends up going crazy.
0: Yeah, and it, wouldn't it make sense to just make a digital version of the book and just sell the digital version?
1: <laughs> I, think <that laughs> do do more, I think there's more to the story of the book yeah. Then we know, because it exposes a lot of, of secrets of a very, very wealthy family and a very wealthy people. Mm. And my hypothesis is that there was some litigation or something that happened, I'm not really sure, but um, I know the author of the book was approached on, it, uh, on Twitter about making a digital version of the book and, or or just getting access to the book. And the author on Twitter said, I have one copy and it's not for sale.
0: I mean, yeah, that that sounds like a book that's not supposed to be read. I mean, come on, man, what's the point? You know, it's like, Don't push the red button, do you know what I mean? Now everyone wants to push the button, everyone wants to read the story like yeah that sounds off and it's clearly like a cover-up but okay. Um, I suppose something I really want to drive at is obviously the thing that I'm picking up here is is a very kind of like um, inspiring book for women obviously. Uh, The story is obviously um, very inspiring for women like would you say that it's still as relevant like I know how that question will sound but there are like a lot of like female CEOs now emerging around the world there's a lot of powerful women in the world now I mean you've got like the prime minister I believe of uh, New Zealand is female all of the Finnish government is female so like slowly but surely we're starting to see a bit more equal representation as far as like uh, male and female representation across just society in general um so taking something like this which once upon a time would have been quite a rarity like something that you know maybe w- women would never even dream of and now it's a, a, a sort of a, a possibility um would you would you say it's like still kind of relevant do you think like like women have more of a chance now than they did let's say well when this book was written or you know like I know how this question sounds, sounds like a really dumb No, no, question, I understand <laughs> what
1: you're saying. I think that we are at a time where women have more opportunities than ever before. I I watched the Cinderella movie with Camila Cabello last mm. night, and it was funny. It was an, a new take on Cinderella where, where Cinderella wanted to be a dressmaker and she wanted to work. And um, at the beginning of the movie, Everybody was like, you know, no, you can't, because you're a woman. And then at the end, Uh, she was able to. So, were you going to say something?
0: Yeah, a couple of things. One, is that the one that has, I think it's on like Disney or something, it's got like James Corden in it? Yes. Yeah, see, I was really interested in that. Like I saw the advert and I was like, oh. and like normally I wouldn't care about something like that. But I saw like the the fairy godmother was like, sort of like a gay black dude. And I was like, that's cool, that's fun. And then Mm -hmm. as soon as I saw James Corden, I was like, oh, no, no, I'm all right. (laughs) He's one of the mice. He's a small part. Even though he's a small part, he somehow still manages to be, I'm not going to swear, really aggravatingly annoying. I just can't stand him. But anyway, um, yeah, cool. Okay, yeah, so with that particular adaptation, um, no, it's it's, 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 it's an interesting one. because I mean that story's been done like a million times but it still seemingly has legs on it um, I
1: know and
0: it's, it's weird as well hearing something like that like oh because it's so old fashioned like oh you're a woman you can't do this like I haven't yeah. heard that in in years but I have a lot of um, for instance I've got have a lot of females in um, in my community um, mm. predominantly female and you know occasionally they'll share stories of of just like casual discrimination or harassment or these different things. And it always kind of blows my mind that it still happens today. Do you know what I mean? Because years ago, it used to be this sort of thing that was like, Oh, it's just something that women have to put up with, you know? And like, society was almost kind of like laughing at it. Like, Oh, it's just, you know, like here's a really good example, right? Something really that seemingly years ago would have been like very passive, but now it's like stamped on. So like in the UK, um, it was always been very pretty common like if you 're a female walking across past a building site and there 's like a group of guys there they 're like wolf whistle or whatever, and years ago it used to be like oh it 's just banter it 's lad banter it 's this it 's that and then i don 't know I want to say somewhere in the mid twenty tens or something like that there 's just there 's been this major shift, maybe it was after me too maybe that 's when it kind of happened, but um it did change, and now that kind of stuff is like destroyed so it's really interesting to hear that it still happens to this day in workplaces and, and various other uh, different places um, yeah
1: so I guess this means to... go on I've never been like uh, well at least not that I'm consciously aware of I don't know of any time that I've been discriminated against for being a woman um, in my workplace or anything like that but I think that just like racism there are some subconscious mm. Um, cycles that we are still working through as a collective uh, regarding, you know, truly seeing everyone on the same or an equal playing field, at least to like start, you know. Um, But as far as my book goes, it's not really necessarily like a woman empowerment story um, as far as the story of Rebecca Harkness. Or, or really Raya, it's, it more, it more um, looks at the tragedy of wealth and the mm-hmm. fact that um, for women and men that wealth doesn't typically last more than three generations. And there's like just all of these stories of people throughout the ages from, I mean, the most ancient people that we know of, of how wealth on individual scales and larger scales, gets squandered by the generations that come after the original people that acquired wealth. Mm. And so that was more the direction that I was like kind of taking with it because I was thinking about these things on a grander scale um, as far as, like I said, the American dream, but how that relates to climate change, how that relates to you know, our kids' future, like the pursuit of limitless wealth cannot be a good thing for us all long-term. And so working in for-profit healthcare, where I felt like I was kind of uh, undervalued and like not, and uh, even though I was the one who like got the degree, the advanced degrees, um, like I have my master's degree specifically for speech pathology. I'm a speech pathologist by background. But yet, yeah. So I found myself in a position where I just had really no room for improvement. I was making like 15% of what I made for my building every day and I just had no, like my coworkers hadn't gotten a raise in like five years. Um, And so I was like grappling with that idea Um, juxtaposed against a stock market that was rising to all-time highs despite us being in the middle of the pandemic and despite, you know, objectively no growth or little growth in our our economy. And so I was just struggling with those ideas. Um, And so while I think that you know the women empowerment angle is is cool, and that is definitely a part of my book. I suppose it wasn't necessarily in my um mm. motivations for writing it
0: no I get that it's like a subproduct of it uh, i I mm-hmm. guess I was just more interested because um well a it's not common for just people in general to become the heir to like millions or billions or whatever that's just not something that happens every day and also you know um from a female perspective of you know like here's a good example um when jeff bezos got his divorce obviously there was a lot of talk about um what his wife was taking away from that which was still a crazy amount of money like i think if he's worth 100 billion then she got like two billion uh which was just crazy to think about Um, but the, Yeah, these things happen, and um, it's it's like you said. Like you, you use the word wealth, and you know that's a very important distinction as well. Because obviously, people always get that confused. You know, rich is yeah, I have a lot of money in the bank account, I flash it, whatever. I go on nice holidays. But wealth is like more like power and influence, and you know, I'm gonna buy <laughs> this land or this island or. Uh, lobby and change these laws in this country, or, or whatever the case may be,
1: <laughs> or by this newspaper, or by this right. politician. Yeah, and then the power is even more substantial because these people have um, an impact on our day-to-day life in ways that we yeah. don't even think about. Yeah, I that's mean, scary. Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Does he? Yeah. Okay. Yes, and um, when there there was a recent, I don't know how recent it was, but um, something about a billionaire tax, and the Washington Post put out an article about how the billionaire tax should not be a thing, yeah, but uh, if you don't know that Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post, then that's like missing information that, you know, is... Important to understanding the context of that news article.
0: Yeah, and also the fact that he owns Amazon or did. So, like, right? You know, if he gets bad press, he can literally print good press about himself. <laughs> Not to, just about like,
1: himself, too, but about his. Comp- he can put print yeah. negative press about his competitors.
0: Yeah, that's messed up. Yeah, but that no is rest. that is how the world works. To be fair, <laughs> like, just... and it
1: has, and it has since. So my my character, Rebecca Harkness, she was already kind of in a wealthy family. Um, her Her father was a tycoon, a business tycoon in St. Louis during the industrial Revolution, and he got together with some of his buddies and bought a paper. And um, I talk about this in my book, but uh, back at that time, there were, you know, labor unions and strikes happening, and then they started. Um, these businesses started hiring, you know, African-American people to, to fill the spots that were previously not given to them because they were African-American, but now because, you know, the, the white workers were striking. Mm -hmm. Um, So then a news article went out about how Negroes were taking people's jobs and that caused this massive race riot throughout the United States that is barely talked about. Like I'd never heard about it before. And it was like the purge, like people, I've seen pictures and I've heard, or I've read firsthand accounts, but like people were dressed in street clothes, roaming the the streets of predominantly black neighborhoods, terrorizing people, burning their houses, throwing, throwing babies into burning houses. In in broad daylight and um, it was kind of sparked by this news article or various news articles that were happening at that time and so it's like the impact is life or death Mm. sometimes.
0: Wow that's pretty crazy. Um, Do you think you're gonna have like a follow-up to this book or anything any other sort of future books either in the works or planned? Cool. Tell, tell, yeah. tell, please tell. I'm
1: working on one right now um, that is, it is like kind of in the same universe as my first book um, and my first book, it, it was difficult to write a fiction book about a real person and um, my, my character of Rhea Harmonia was inspired by Taylor Swift as well as other pop stars and you know, social media figures in this age, um, but it, it was difficult to kind of figure out like a contemporary fiction um, where I'm keeping true to some details, but it's not a true book. So anyway, I'm doing the same thing with my next book. It ha- There's gonna be five points of view in this book, and one of the points of view is a character who's in Lucky which is Abby and Abby um, you find out and Lucky is an investor in GameStop and so I have been following the GameStop situation since January and um, I think that it helps paint a really interesting picture of our financial markets and um, some just some society issues so my next book is going to be exploring the GameStop saga in a contemporary fiction form, um, and with multiple points of view.
0: What does your writing process or approach to writing a book actually look like?
1: I start by with ideas, um, broad ideas, and write like essay type things about those ideas, mm. and then. As I'm writing those, I start getting other ideas for like the, the book and the characters. And so um, then when I you start s- writing those and then puzzle them together.
0: When you say essay type, so what you like, you'll sort of pose yourself a question, answer the question, and then in that, you'll sort of develop uh, bigger ideas from that. Is that kind of what you mean?
1: Yeah, and the great thing about that too is that it helps me understand you know, part of why I write is to help myself get a better hold of something that I am struggling with or that I'm trying to understand more fully um, or come to terms with. And okay. so that that's exactly it. I, I have either a question or something that just is burning on my mind and then I explore it further.
0: Yeah, so like your book, whenever you are thinking of writing a book, essentially what you're trying to do is is answer all of those questions within that book but you need to obviously answer them beforehand via doing these like sort of mini essay things and then you sort of once you've got enough to kind of work with a basic story or structure then you take it to the next stage sort of thing yes cool cool that's it no it's interesting I, I like to ask different authors that because i think the, the writing approach is always interesting everyone has a different style and, oh for uh, sure
1: And everybody writes for different reasons, you know. I never set out to be a writer, to write this book, really. It Mm. just kind of happened. I I was working as a speech pathologist. I never considered myself a writer. I've always journaled, but I've never, like, written anything, really.
0: So I know I sort of briefly asked you about the motivation before, but was it more kind of like, oh, I need to just put this out because I have some ideas on it? Because obviously that's a big transition, isn't it? You could have obviously just set up a blog about this or set up some sort of, uh, you know, like a book is a big commitment. And obviously you would have known that going into that. So so where did that kind of shift happen where you were like, okay, I need to do this. I need to put this down. Like what, what, what was the reason for that?
1: I would say that was Taylor, like finding out about the story of Rebecca Harkness, seeing okay. the parallels between her, and, and her life and the things that were going on in her life and the parallels to some of the things that I was experiencing oh, and yeah, some of the little things little. that we were experiencing as a collective. And then it, it just like kind of happened. I, I originally thought about potentially writing a musical because I have a background in musical theater, um, but I have no background in writing music, so I just, when I started writing I don't know it just it all came together so fast I had been writing those essay type things though um, before Taylor Swift's album came out in July of last year um, and then but, but, I started writing this book in September
0: but I guess what I want to know is like were, were you kind of just writing the like essay things for fun and then you kind of said you know what I want to turn this into something or I because what you kind of said before was like you know you, you'd experimented with journalism or journaling sorry you'd done it a, a little bit so it sounded like in the context of your overall life it was like a small little hobby on the side and then there's this transition where as you said you'd saw all these different things you made all these different connections you're like okay I want to do something with this um, but I guess what I'm trying to probe at is that where that turns from kind of doing these like essay things to, okay, I'm going to write a book about this. Like, is it, was that kind of just like, I need to put this out. I need to get this out there. I need to have my kind of opinion on this. Or was it like, this is my idea for a book and I want to become an author. And this is going to be my first thing. And then we're going to build from there. Like, do you see what I mean? Like, cause obviously yeah. as you spoke about before, you, you wanted to move away from, from healthcare and we'll, and we'll get to that a bit later. But um, now the shift is kind of like, well, I'm an author now. So I guess what I want to know, like, what, what, how did that decision kind of come up? Okay, I'm going to become an author.
1: Yeah. So I just found myself with a lot to say, but yet feeling increasingly not relatable with everybody around me. I felt like uh, nobody, I felt like I was complaining about the same things over and over to my family, especially, um, but never being able to articulate what I wanted to say in the way that I wanted to say it. Um, And so I think that that's what sparked my original essays. And then what led to the book is that like, I wanted the people that I loved to read it because I wanted them to understand me a little bit more. And while I was working in the nursing home, I like, I think that the word that best describes how I was feeling um, is undervalued and undervalued in every, uh, that ended up manifesting itself in in other parts of my life as well. And I felt that my words really didn't have value anymore. Um, And so I think that that was more, my motivation was just to, have my voice have value, and to use my voice to change, or or maybe start to change some of the things that I see that are wrong about the world. <laughs> um, and I think that being an author gives me a really interesting opportunity to do that, um, both through my writing and then through, you know, my platform and being able to come on to different podcasts and have different, you know, Instagram lives with different authors or different experts and um, just, you know, put that value back in my voice.
0: Funny thing, actually. Um, I, was, I was reading uh, one of my favorite books the other day. Uh, it's called The Heart of a Dog by uh, Mikhail Bolgakov. And uh, it's basically written around, I think Russian revolution time as they sort of transitioned into early communism. And um, a lot of the books that Bolagokov wrote were just about his life, just about things, his experiences, thoughts, you know, feelings, opinions. And the more and more I kind of read into authors behind books, the more I realized like, you know, it's just, it's just people. I don't, I think there's, it's, it's not common, well, I don't know how common it is that people sort of just wake up and go, I want to be an author. Like that just happened. I think a lot of people just live a life, find they have some stuff to say that they feel compelled to put out into the world in some shape or form. And then, you know, writing a book is the natural kind of progression. Like, okay, well, I need to get this stuff out. This is how I'm going to do it. Obviously other people do it different mediums. Like I use Ricky Gervais as an example a lot of the time, like he, you know, turns his, experiences into TV shows or whatever you know it's I, th- I think it's a brilliant way to kind of take lessons you've learned from life and then convert them into stories with messages that people can kind of pick up on and relate to in some shape or form and it's entertainment as well. Um,
1: right but yeah, I mean so- I think, I think that stories are how we even make sense of our own life yeah so i think that storytelling is a natural progression for humans as a species because like even even like just our thoughts are stories if you really think about it our memories are just the story that our brain is telling us of what happened at that time but we all know that our memory is not you know 100 accurate all the time foolproof um, and so, so that's just really interesting. I think that stories have so much power.
0: Mm. And absolutely, I, I completely agree. That worries as, as well because I, I remember, sometimes I remember things better than they actually happened, and I'll have a friend correct me like, "Oh, actually, it was more like this," and I'm like, "It was." But most of those stories were drinking stories, so that's different. That'll get you. I do have a couple more questions about your writing, but I just want to focus on something that you brought up a few times. because um, I think it's important in the overarching kind of story of you becoming an author. So obviously you mentioned that you're an essential healthcare worker. During the, uh, the pandemic, uh, you are working in a nursing home. Um, I guess I want to know about your experiences. I want to kind of press on, on why you felt undervalued. Because uh, I do feel like there are a lot of commonalities, similarities between the U.S. and the U.K. health care systems. Obviously, they are very different, as we all know, but um, the U.K.'s one is slowly but surely becoming more privatized. And Obviously, it's very well known how the, the healthcare care system in the U.S. works. But from your perspective, you know, being on the front lines, being within that, tell us your experiences.
1: Okay. So let me start by just kind of telling the story of me in the nursing home during the pandemic. Um, And actually a little bit before, too. Um, Nursing homes, if you're familiar, are just kind of a sad place in general. Um, But I was originally drawn to work there because I went to a medical-specific grad school for speech pathology, and I found that I would make more money in a nursing home than in a hospital, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. Um, so I decided to work in a nursing home and, uh, I think that part of the reason is to, that that is the case is to draw people in. And I think that there's pretty high turnover in nursing homes because of that. Um, and the benefits aren't really that great. And like I said, my coworkers hadn't gotten a raise in I think five years, um, which is just ridiculous. (laughs) Um, and and then right before the pandemic, the government changed their reimbursement policies for, um, for, for therapy in a nursing home and inpatient rehab setting. And we just kind of got gypped on it. And um, so that, I was already feeling undervalued. And then the pandemic started and my nursing home got hit with COVID honestly, I think in January, but it, it, might, it wasn't like official until February, March. Um, but by the time lockdown started, over 90% of my patients had COVID. And um, it, was, it was really just a sad time uh, for multiple reasons. First of all, um, the, the nursing home wasn't allowed to have visitors for obvious reasons, but um, you know, visitors really help the staff and um everyone make sure that people's needs are getting met. Oh, that's and interesting. So yeah. people's needs were often not getting met. And I I'm the type of person who um takes on people's problems and makes them my own. And so I found myself always you know, doing what I could to make sure that that my patients were, you know, having the best life that they could, making sure, like, so if they hadn't eaten or hadn't gotten changed, like, I was the one who would go m- talk to their CNA or write the report or, um, you know, even just, like, FaceTiming people's families. At the beginning, uh, the, the facility wasn't having any type of FaceTime or any type of communication for the families and the the patients. And so in my sessions, like I would do, I would do FaceTimes with their families. And it it turned out that like every single patient that I was doing that with passed away during that time. And then I would like have their families calling me after and like trying to get me to tell them information or like, it was just, it was just really crazy. So sad. I never got hazard pay. I didn't get sick time at baseline. My boss got COVID. They made her work from home. She was pregnant. They made her work from home. Otherwise she would have had to take workers comp and get like 60% of her pay. they like, so I was doing more than ever. I was pouring my heart and soul into these patients and just, I, I wasn't being valued for that. People didn't care at the end of the day. Like that is not their first priority, the money from the government or the patient's families or whatever is. And so like that just really was hard for me to wrap my head around because like I kind of lived my life up until this past year thinking that like it it was the good thing for me to do to help people. I was being... I was doing the right thing mm-hmm. like but then I saw no one else around me doing what I thought was the right thing and like just kind of like getting I don't know they they were having a better life and better a better situation than I was in. And, And I was looking at my friends around me who were then working from home when I had to continue to go into work every day. And they were getting, you know, stipends from their company for work at home stuff or they were getting bonuses. And I'm like, what's a bonus? We haven't had a raise in five years.
0: So, see, this is interesting because there's a there's a lot of. Again, I mentioned this before, there's a lot of similarities between our nations as far as this is concerned. Obviously, we do have a public healthcare system, the NHS, but at the same time, when it comes to things like care homes and uh, the NHS, I do remember that there was a brief pay rise, maybe, hmm, I want to say four, five, six months into the pandemic, Um, but as I recall... It was really, it was a substantial pay rise for doctors, but not for nurses. And of course, everyone, uh, even to this day, um, have been working like crazy hours trying to keep up and stuff. Um,
1: Well, and the funny thing is, is like the nurses and the CNAs and the therapists are the ones who are actually spending the time with the patients, like actually having to give the patients direct care. When exactly. the doctors, like they have, of course, the schooling, and you know, they they are paid the big bucks for a reason, but they're not spending the same time with the patients that other professions in the healthcare field are, and it's funny that they're always the ones that end up getting the raises and the special parking spots. And etc. Cetera,
0: etc. Cetera. Yeah, it's the same story in, in the UK. I mean, geez, even the UK Parliament, we, we have conservatives in at the moment, and um, they're very famous for kind of always taxing very high, cutting benefits, that kind of stuff. Um, but obviously, it hits a lot harder right now during a pandemic that they're doing these sorts of things because we're not out of it. I mean, things might be back to normal. I know in the states you're pretty much back to normal and in the uk we, we kind of are because we sort of follow your template and vice versa you follow ours but i don't know that that's necessarily the right idea like i was stunned when i started seeing that in the states like i remember there was like a a smaller version of the super bowl like instead of having hundred thousand, it was like sixty thousand. i still couldn't believe what i was seeing and then obviously you know i mentioned before i'm a, I'm a wrestling fan um wrestling was really hit hard just the same as sports without fans um but when the fans came back oh, i was still thinking like i don't know i feel like this is too early i know everyone's vaccinated but do you know what people still get um the virus with or without covid you know i mean i go out of my house every day and i just kind of take the risk i i don't go out often i try and limit the amount of times i go out and stuff but like I kind of just go along with whatever the current advice is and and just work with that. Um, So like when I do my volunteer work, for instance, like we just wear masks the whole time. Um, But then like, if I go to the store, maybe I don't wear it, but it's, I don't know. It's very iffy here. Cause like the government have kind of said like, we'll review this. And like right now, uh, as of recording this, it's, it's now uh, we're in September. And uh, they're talking about there maybe will be another lockdown in October. I don't think there will be, but it could happen. And our government at least is very kind of, they do, uh, it's really obvious what they do. It's like, if there's news that something is going to happen, it probably will happen. But they'll keep telling you like, no, 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 no. No, no, We're going to review it this time, going to review it this time. And then they'll do everything that everyone was worried about. But they just won't tell you that. You know, and yeah. I understand it's it's to not like freak people out and worry people. But it's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like I had a really bad feeling that we might re-enter a lockdown because last year. And OK, fair enough. We didn't have the vaccine last year. So that's a different factor. But last year it was like we we locked down too late. Uh, the, gov- the right. It was like end of March or something when they decided to put us into lockdown. And um by summertime of, of last year, we were all but back to normal as well, at least in the sense that, like, you know, pubs and clu- uh, well, not clubs, but pubs and outdoor spaces and all these things were, were open again. And people were fraternizing and going out and everything, which is fine because obviously the government told them that that was okay to do that. And there was even a scheme in place, uh, I think it was like 50% off dining or whatever to to encourage people to go out and and do these things and then obviously the cases rose and then they just sent us back into lockdown and blamed the public for 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 that even though they told us to do that and I kind of feel like the same thing might happen again this year I'm trying to be positive optimistic optimistic, that's the word um but it's it's hard it's hard to know you know and especially in the states I mean it's 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 even crazier because you know you're essentially like 50, 50, 51 countries in in one space. Do you know what I mean? Like every everywhere operates differently. So obviously you're in Chicago, but like Texas or New York are like operating in a different way. Maybe they're similar, maybe not. You know, people I've had on the podcast, for instance, from places like Alabama, uh, pretty much just didn't even acknowledge that there was a pandemic going on. They just did their thing. And then there was other states where uh, they were really strict so it's it's interesting you know and just going back to the point about uh where the government kind of like they do do things to help people but like the people on the front lines always have a very different kind of perspective do you know what I mean like there, there was a lot of like support initially coming from our government for the NHS and things like that frontline workers but when you look at like baseline of what that actually means like you know people maybe getting pay rise stuff like that it didn't really happen but yet the government was happy to give themselves pay rises so
1: right yeah yeah Yeah. just like our congress who uh right in the thick of the pandemic last year took a month-long vacation cool guys thanks
0: in fairness though that was trump's government so
1: Yeah. Well, I think that part of that's so true. I think part of, and and I think that part of the reason that you see, you know, the people in the more southern states not take it as seriously is because, you know, those states were bigger Trump supporters and Trump's response to the pandemic was subpar best. Um, but I think that part of the problem with all of this is how it has been so politicized and people look at wearing masks as a political yeah, statement in a way. and it's just like that's not what it is.
0: I will say this as like I'm not really a political guy, but any government, any government, regardless of affiliation, right, would struggle. With a pandemic, you know, like, because we have Labour and Conservative here, which is basically Labour, I guess, is uh, like Democrats and then Conservatives is, is like Republicans, sort of, but not yeah. quite, but sort of. Um, okay. And on that basis it's like, it 's like it wouldn't matter like if, if, if the Democrats had been in in america it, there would have been similar problems, maybe certain things would have been dealt with differently, but it would have been similar problems you know and same here i'm i'm convinced if, if labor were in same same problems because at the end of the day, you still just have a group of people who are trying to decide what the best things are to do, and they have sort of like delayed medical and scientific advice being given to them, which they're unsure about like, that. The impression that I get here in the UK is that they were just unsure what to do.
1: Yeah. The like they and had I all mean, this
0: information and it was conflicting with each other.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and it was a novel a novel virus, right? Mm. So, you know, most of the things that we have vaccines for, that we have treatments for, you need, you know, evidence-based research to to back your decisions up and we just didn't have that at the beginning of the pandemic which definitely like you said you know led to the paralysis almost and I think the delay in lockdowns I think that the thing that would have really helped us the most is if we would have locked down right away and yeah you know would have just like gotten gotten it over with and like everybody would have gotten on board but on the other side of that is shutting down the economy which has yeah. a ton of seriously negative consequences um which also need to be taken into account so our politicians really were put in between a rock and a hard place
0: and this is why i'm, I'm kind of fair to them on that basis like for instance while I do think we are out of this a bit too early, yeah, I mean you couldn't keep it. Yeah, you couldn't keep going, especially America. I don't know about the UK. I, th- I think we would. Yeah, I mean we would suffer, but the U- U.S. definitely couldn't survive another year of being locked down. That would just be it. <laughs> like you, you gotta, you gotta. But here's the thing. Like I think with certain things, certain measures could have been put in place. Certain things could have been done. Like I still think. For instance, sporting events could have been done at like quarter or half capacity for a bit longer before they went full blast with it. Because I feel like with a lot of these decisions, it's like nought to 60. Do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay, we're just going to change it up now. Like if you look around in the UK now, um, it's no longer law that you have to wear the mask. It's more like encouraged but like okay. no one does and why yeah. would you to be fair if no one if you walk outside and no one is wearing a mask you're probably not going to wear them and like, right. i'd say maybe two percent of people i see outside are wearing them like even even me i've been very cautious since the very beginning but even i don't wear it really that much anymore uh, other than the volunteering work i do um but that's more because i go into like people's homes um Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, we're dealing with people from different ages. So it's, it makes sense to be more careful in that sense and, and protect Yeah. People. What
1: do you do for your volunteering work?
0: It's, it's a mixture of things. So sometimes it's on base, helping, you know, give food parcels or, or like uh, food to the homeless, that kind of stuff, answering calls. Um, they have like a charity shop as well. But the main stuff I tend to do is um, like we deliver furniture so like people that have recently been homeless and now have a place to live um, or people in poor income families and we also collect donations from places and give it back to the charity kind of thing Um, so obviously like I've been doing this since um, god October last year nearly a year Um, and especially like in the height of the pandemic last year it was really important to wear the mask and but I, I still wear it like you know even when I do it now I still or wear the mask when I go into people's homes and stuff but um I very much kind of go on the basis of whatever the what, what the vibe is what the story. but then yeah I've been out since then like out out in the city and no one wears a mask and at the very first time I was really anxious about it. I was like I don't know if this is a good idea but then I kind of thought in a way it's pointless for me to wear a mask if everyone is not wearing a mask if you see what I'm saying
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it still might protect you, but a little bit, but it's still so unknown. And like, I think, you know, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. But um, in Chicago right now, we do have a mask mandate. So we have to wear masks. Yeah. Interesting. in, In any public place. We don't have to wear them outside, but in a grocery store or, you know starbucks or whatever you do see this
0: is interesting because um as of again this podcast happening uh, i think a couple of days ago um a couple of wrestling events happened in chicago uh aew's all out event happened there in the sears center i think or one of okay. them one of the main i'm gonna kill myself for not remembering this uh one of the main um stadiums arenas in Chicago Uh, it's a big capacity theater but no one was wearing masks in the audience so it's interesting that maybe maybe it's like different regions in the state I don't know Um, and
1: it's a mandate but it's like not like legally enforced it's ah, not like police are going around and like arresting people who aren't wearing masks but
0: that's that's key though because like Mm -hmm. your wording is so important a mandate I I kind of thought that that meant typically that mandatory like you have to but as you say, if it's not being policed, I mean, even during the height of the pandemic last year, people were still not wearing it, and I never saw anyone get in trouble for not wearing a mask ever.
1: Right?
0: Never. Like if people...
1: anything. If anything, someone would just ask you to put one on.
0: Yeah, and that would be the end of it, really.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, if if you complied, I guess. I think I have seen like some crazy videos of like yeah. people getting tackled. <laughs> i don't
0: know it's crazy when you think about it isn't it like people it is some people it talk is. about it like 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 as far as i do understand people getting annoyed like having to wear them but at the same time if someone just asks you to put, put a bit of cloth around your face for like a little bit of time do you know even if that goes against what you believe in like it's not really a big deal like what, what imagine imagine if like i turned around and said like oh no you have to wear uh, a space helmet like that's much more intrusive. That's much more of an issue. A mask is not really, if anything, do you know, it's funny. A lot of the people I've spoken to actually like the masks because <laughs> it's like it grants yeah. anonymity. You can silently judge people without them knowing. You can just, I don't know, do all manner of weird stuff that people can't see with your mouth. I don't know. So uh, true. <laughs> so,
1: it's, it's funny. Masks have pros, definitely. But one of the major cons is the mass a- mask acne When I was working in in the nursing home and had to wear wear my mask every day, I would get so many pimples and like my skin was just terrible. But you gotta make sure, little uh, fun tip for anyone who has to wear their mask at work all day or whatever, make sure after you eat lunch, you brush your teeth or use mouthwash because your mouth has a lot of bacteria in it. And when you're breathing, like in and out of a mask and your mouth has bacteria that bacteria is getting trapped behind the mask and it's either going back inside of you or it ends up as pimples on your face
0: that makes sense Mm -hmm. i've learned something new today okay there you go right on on. i'll remember that for next time i probably still 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 won't do it but at least i will know now.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, right.
0: The main thing I have is is the the problem with the strings on the ears, so it just aches. Like uh, like I, I had it I had it the other day. I had to wear a mask all day indoors, and um, obviously you change them every every once in a while and change your gloves every once in a while. Um, but yeah, it's really painful. It like I had like an aching sensation that lasted at least two or three hours afterwards.
1: Oof. Yeah. well you'll have to send me your address after we're done with this because i have some masks that i got made for my book and they have adjustable ear straps and they're like the most comfortable masks ever so i'll send you a couple
0: cool right on right on. i like, I like <laughs> that's the one the one thing i like about the masks is is like customizable that like people saw it as an opportunity like marketing opportunity and <laughs> yes because <laughs> so of, course, of course of course they do <laughs>
1: why not <laughs> word of mouth advertising
0: as, yeah no it's a good point actually like literally literally word. yeah
1: <laughs> literally
0: <laughs> um so you mentioned that you're a speech language or were a speech language pathologist. um can you just tell us a little bit more about that job and what it entails
1: sure so I still technically am a speech language pathologist I'm not working in the field right now um you, fr- but, you
0: freelance or freelancing um y-
1: yeah I do have we call, like in our field we call it prn so um i it like registry or as needed i have a part-time job that i help out at once in a while just to keep my skills fresh Mm. because it is you know a licensure like i had to get licensed i had to go through a fellowship year in order to do it so like i don't want to lose the opportunity that i like to work if i would want to in the future um but Speech-language pathology, most people uh, know about it as far as kids in schools with LISPs or other speech impediments, um, but I was working on the medical side of speech pathology, so um, m- the areas that I would work on patients with was uh, cognition, so memory, attention, executive functioning, um, speech and language, so the actual articulation of the speech, or the language part of speech, which happens in your brain. And then we also worked with uh, swallowing disorders. So anyone who was having difficulties swallowing, um, our, our breathing tube and our food tube are like right next to each other in our throat. And so especially if somebody has some kind of you know, brain damage, neurological disease, um, any kind of weakness, things can go wrong. And so we would modify people's diets. We would do swallowing exercises with them. uh, Just rehabilitate the swallowing muscles to get them back to eating regular foods.
0: So on a slightly related note, um, I don't know if, (laughs) this is sound funny, but just bear with me. When I was like four, I think four years old, I, (laughs) um, it's quite funny. I like accidentally choked on something. I don't know what it was. I think it might have been a hot dog sausage or something. Um, (laughs) But from from that point onwards, I had like a problem swallowing certain things. So like pills, even to this day, I'm a wuss when it comes to taking pills. I have to like take a massive swig of water. Even if it's a tiny pill, I have to be like, like that. And um, also I couldn't eat normal sausages. So not hot dog sausages, but normal sausages. Um, it would make me feel sick. Like I'd smell them. I'd feel sick. And then somewhere around 11, 12 years old, that sensation just went away. Just no, I'm still, I still get the thing where I'm a bit funny about taking pills, but I just do it. But, um, but that thing with the sausages went away. And I always wondered like, if that was just an irrational fear or if there was uh, some more serious problem there or something like that. I don't
1: know. My guess is that that was like a psychological thing that, like, you're kind of traumatized from (laughs) (laughs) almost to death. And because, like, there's no physiological reason that I can think of that an event when you were four would cause, like, nausea and problems until you were older, unless you had some kind of actual damage in your throat. But I think that you would have difficulties eating other things too, not just one specific thing.
0: Right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for sharing, by the way. Um, You're welcome. So we'll bring it back to your writing because I found this interesting. You actually published your book under your own publishing company. Uh, I did. So I just wanted to ask, like, what steps did you take to actually create this company? What does it require? And also why? Why you decided to do that as opposed to just going for a regular publisher?
1: For sure. So let's start with the why. Um, And it has to do partially with the the fact that I was feeling undervalued in my job. And part of the reason I was feeling undervalued was because there was a middleman who was, you know, sucking a part of my (laughs) profits, but Mm -hmm. doing nothing in my opinion. Um, and so for my book, like I, I had the cover very, very early on in the process. Um, I, I already, like I had my, I had my editors. like I had everything lined up for myself. And so I kind of looked at it as a similar situation, like that a, a publishing company would have just been a, a middleman for mm-hmm. me. Um, because they don't, Surprisingly, they don't really do that much. They get your book printed and they distribute it. Um, But like a lot of the advertising, they don't have big advertising budgets for each book. They don't have, or or for each author. Um, So like that often falls on the author themselves to do. And usually with, with the advance that they had been given. So I at the beginning of the pandemic, I got really in, interested in, in the stock market before that too, but I was really, really into it at the beginning of the stock market <laughs> and, or I'm sorry, at the beginning of the pandemic. And so I, um, I, I made some money and that's how I was able to you know, oh, ultimately bro. quit my job. Um, but I oh. just kind of looked at this as an investment in myself. And yeah. so I, um, I just wanted to do it myself and I wanted to have the control and I wanted to just say that I did it so I incorporated a company in an LLC and then I actually printed my well um my books are on Amazon and that's like Amazon will print on demand paperback books which is really cool um, so like if somebody goes to buy my ah I lost you sorry
0: (laughs) (laughs) um
1: no if somebody goes to buy my book um amazon will just print it like on demand which is great because i don't have to um i don't have to like you know put up front any money for that but i did get hardcover books printed and i got a thousand hardcover books printed and i had to i had to like you know front the cost for that
0: right so that's how you get if you suddenly get like a massive demand like let's say your book takes off like Next month, and you suddenly just get like ten thousand orders, like that's how you'll deal with it. You just have to front up a certain amount of cost, and Amazon deals with the kind of they they're essentially the middleman in a sense
1: yeah, yeah okay they definitely are the middleman it's like honestly I, it, it's it is kind of the same thing i'm
0: I'll no no no. No, no, exploring no no other
1: options um for my next book too, just because they do take quite like I make a very, very small amount of money per book. Okay. Um, so, I, I don't know. The convenience is a definite pro of going through anim- Amazon um, and not having to deal with, like, you know, the, like, shipping out the books, like, housing the books, like, storing the books, you know what I mean? Um, but they are definitely still a middleman.
0: Okay. So you're looking eventually to, to distance yourself from them as well and be able to get like a better sort of deal for yourself kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I would yeah. love for this just to be like, you know, my, my thing. Mm. Um, and that's what I was looking for really, because I, I just found myself despite, like I said, despite having gotten advanced degrees, despite having spent my four years at undergrad, two years getting my master's, like I found myself very stuck and mm-hmm. I looked at the other options for me um, in my field and other fields. And like I really didn't see any place where I wouldn't be stuck unless I was working for myself and doing my own thing. And so that was really what motivated me to to start my my own publishing company.
0: Awesome. No, uh, I, th- I think it's a sensible thing to do. I just think it's it's, it's a tricky one, because obviously, uh, much in the same as as the music industry, you know, when you are working with publishing companies, you do have the machine behind you as far as like distribution is concerned. But I hear more and more like in the music industry that people, uh, artists are opting to get distribution deals as opposed to label deals so that, you know, they have full control and ownership and, and such. And the only thing they have to front up is money to get it distributed. Um, Mm -hmm. so if a similar thing is possible in in, in the the book industry, then that's, that's obviously more preferable because you know, you keep retain more of your own money. So,
1: right, right.
0: Best of luck with that.
1: Thank you so much. It's been fun and it's been really empowering.
0: Awesome. Um, on your website, you state that a word you'd use to describe the impact you intend to make on the world is transformative, and you aim to achieve this via your storytelling ability. So tell us more about your sort of philosophy of life and storytelling.
1: Ah, philosophy is my favorite part of life. (laughs) I've really, really delved into philosophy this year. Um, But like looking back at my life, um, I, I think that it can be categorized as transformative and almost every year I, I feel like I'm constantly changing, um, learning and growing. And I think that a, a strength of mine is that I'm open to learning new things, extremely open to learning new things. Like I love to learn. Um, and I think that that's how we grow and transform is through, through learning. Um, and so, while I write my books and like, while I wrote Lucky, for example, like, like I'm a completely different person than I was when I started writing that book. And I think that some, at least some of that, uh, it has been captured in, in my book. And hopefully, you know, that I look at it kind of like the butterfly effect where one small change can, you know, spark, Mm spark consequences that you never would have expected but I look at it as like one small change in myself can hopefully spark more collective change uh through through you know reading my books and reading my writing
0: I totally agree with you um it's not something you originally think about I think when when you create art because I I as well I I I mean, I'm going to call myself a writer. I do occasional poetry and stuff. But the things that I'm more into are writing music, podcasting, uh, acting, you know, all these sort of endeavors. And, um, I'm sort of building an online following right and some some of Mm -hmm. that following listens to this podcast as well so hello (laughs) um
1: hey guys
0: (laughs) but some of them have been telling me they've been a bit more vocal lately they've been saying how like they've been inspired by what I do to do their own things or or that it gave them like a a positive kind of outlook on things which inspired them to do something or you know they were just having a bad day and that turned it into at least a good ending for a bad day or something like that. And I guess my point is that like, you don't really think about that impact until you start seeing it. Uh, Much the same as that when I do my volunteer work, I just do that because I want to help people and, you know, I I love to do it. But every now and again, something will happen um, or someone will thank you. Like, I'll give you a really good example. Like it was close to Christmas and, um, it was I was working with this driver and this particular driver had a bad attitude which was weird because everyone else at this place I do volunteering at is awesome but this particular person wasn't and I was really I was like wow I'm the professional one here like this is odd Uh, because the thing is what I normally do is I sort of tag along and help and everything and I do you know I take it very seriously but essentially I am a helper in that situation Um, but they were sort of pushing the responsibility onto me and I was like okay Um, but the scenario was that we were delivering furniture to this person's house and um, the first thing I noticed straight away was that outside the house occasionally in the UK you have like these like bars on the, so- on the outside of the door I think it's more for like when people are disabled or they're, or they're elderly and they just need something to pull themselves in something to hold on to while they're I don't know grabbing their keys or, or whatever the case may be um, to assist people essentially and um, I was like, oh, okay. And I was thinking, hmm. And basically the driver's complaining because it's like, oh, no, I'm not going to wait. I've got other things to do. You know, we're busy, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking like, Jesus, we've been here like a minute. Like, let's just, you know, I was like, what if they're elderly? Like maybe they're, because basically we always call them before to like, let them know like, oh, hey, we're outside. Can we come in? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and he was just really kind of, in a bad mood just not being very professional and I was like (laughs) I said like we're gonna wait I was just assuming control of the situation even though I'm not in control I'm like we're gonna wait let's wait let's call them let's wait so he speaks to them on the phone and um they're running late it's it's a mother she's she's running late okay and I just had a feeling about this situation you know I in more recent years I just tend to rely on my feelings and they sort of always steer me in the right direction and I thought they're going to come here and even though we've sort of put all of the stuff outside the house at this point he wanted to basically drive off and leave it and I would just felt bad because it's one thing if you just leave a a table but we'd left like basically enough furniture to well fill a house so (laughs) I was like come on this is ridiculous and I just had a feeling that that was Uh,
1: wrong sorry No 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 worries
0: no worries no worries Um, I had a feeling like it was wrong like you know we should wait and wouldn't you know this mother eventually came five ten minutes later and she looks stressed as hell and she's got two kids one of whom is a bit elderly one is is younger but she just looks stressed and I just Mm -hmm. saw because my my mum was a single parent and I I don't know that she was a single parent but she just had that look in her eyes the same look that my mum had on some days when she was really stressed with me just trying to you know live and and make things happen and um (laughs) she yeah she was her her mind was all over the place she's just clearly like got a million things going on in her head and I my colleague eventually did assume control of the situation started like communicating with her and uh, then she just asked us oh hey would you mind also moving this thing for me downstairs, upstairs. And it was like really difficult to get up there and stuff. Like it was hard work, but you know, that's what we're there for. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Like no problem. And I lifted it and I was like, it didn't weigh anything either, but it was awkward. You could tell on our own, that would be a problem. And so we just lifted it up there. It took maybe like a minute or two. Uh, and then I was not expecting this. I was ready to just be like, hey, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you know, have a good Christmas, all that. But she literally said, like, oh, my God, thank you so much. Like, there's been so much. Like, you could tell, like, she just wanted to, like, cry, but she's, like, holding back tears, like, because that was, like, that meant a lot. But, and clearly, like, there's a lot of stuff going on, but you don't want to, like, unload to a stranger. But at the same time, it's like, oh, my God, thank you so much. And I was like, yeah, no worries. Have a good Christmas. And stuff like that is is why... Or well, A, I think you should, People should do volunteering, and B, yeah. Um, yeah, just when you see that impact that you have on other people, um, it just spurs you on to keep, keep creating, keep doing good things, positive things in life to help people. Keep trying to put positivity out into the world and 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 kind of impact the world in a positive way and make people feel better and you know what, make the world a better place little by little.
1: Yeah. And I think what's so amazing about this kind of thing is that, like, you never know exactly how or what you're doing that makes the change. And so that just speaks to the importance of, like, you know, you live, like, you need to be living your best life. You need to be, you know, um, balanced and and have, have a philosophy, have a why. You, you, you have to have all of these things, um, and, I mean, through volunteering and through writing, you can find those things if you don't already know them, Mm. um, but, but I really think, again, it's, it's the change inside of you that then spreads into the world around you, and that is just, like, such a powerful thing, Um, Jordan Peterson is one of my like favorite intellectuals to listen to. Um, and I think it was him who said, like, you can't change a city unless you change yourself Mm. or something. And so one of his big things is like, you know, every day you wake up, you make your bed, like that starts your day off, off on a good note where you've accomplished something. And then that already puts you in a good state of mind for all of your interactions during during that day yeah i Um, totally
0: agree i mean sometimes like i'm a very tidy person anyway but like every now and again inevitably when you're working you know your room gets messy your space gets messy and every now and again i'll just have a day where i just clean stuff up do the hoovering washing all this stuff you know and it's funny how like once you're done you just breathe and you just feel better you're like you feel like refreshed like you've hit the reset button you're like ah, oh, you know and it's good yes. you, need, you need that you need that but like yeah so, so, so yeah some days are just you know the, be- the best thing you did was you woke up and you got yourself out of bed and that is an achievement in of itself because
1: and that's okay right right and like on the flip side of that too like if you are filled with negativity if you're filled with insecurity, if you're filled with, you know, criticisms for, for people around you, I think that that ends up manifesting in, in the world around you too. So this is like really of the utmost importance because every day, whether you realize it or not, you're changing the world around you. And so that's why it's all that much more important to make sure that you are you know in the person you want to be. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right um, my next question seems a bit silly now uh, what are the best and worst things about Chicago <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay best and worst things about Chicago best Well let's start with worst parking. I have gotten so many parking tickets in Chicago that my parents joked that when I moved to like my own apartment that I needed to have a budget item for parking tickets (laughs) because I would get them legitimately every month. Wow. (laughs) Uh, It was brutal. Uh, And it's just driving and parking kind of sucks. But the best thing about Chicago is being by the lake. And I just, I love being around water. Um, Mm. It really is balancing for me it's inspirational for me. And the fact that I, like, I, I'm in a volleyball league and it's right on the beach. Oh, and cool. the skyline is in, like right there in the background. Um, it, it's so beautiful. And it, every time I go, I'm just like, man, could I be any luckier? So. Are
0: you originally from Chicago?
1: Uh, from the suburbs of Chicago oh, and so then I moved Road. to Indianapolis in mm-hmm. Indiana for for um, college I went to Butler University and then I moved back to Chicago to the actual city for um, grad school and then I decided to continue to live here
0: now it's refreshing to hear someone that like loves where they're originally from because you don't know yeah. I don't know like, I, I grew up in London I now live in Manchester for those who don't know it's Sort of in the middle of England, and okay. uh everyone is always like oh you 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 were born in London, oh, that must have been great and it's like uh no, not really um it was fun when I was a teenager that was about it mm-hmm. but but the reality is like it, it it does really depend. I think if you spend time away from home, that's a big thing like i but <laughs> I missed like i lived in in Europe for three years, and I, I came back funnily enough as the pandemic hit and um but I still didn't want to stay in London <laughs> I wanted to go yeah. somewhere else but I did miss the UK that familiarity and um it's like they say isn't it absence makes the heart grow fonder but it's it's cool to yeah. hear that you uh that you dig Chicago I hear a lot of good things about Chicago actually
1: it's awesome I mean the food is also great you should really come visit
0: I would love to if I had oh my god it would definitely be on my list of places to go I'd love to see professional wrestling there because for professional wrestling Chicago is known as one of the best towns certainly in America town uh places in America to see wrestling but yeah anyway it's so
1: funny because like I, that, I didn't even know that to yeah be perfectly honest
0: huge I'm surprised that there's a wrestler actually from Chicago isn't it? his name's uh, CM Punk And um, he's like big in the wrestling world. He's also like a massive hockey fan, Um, and he's like such a big deal in Chicago that like, (laughs) like even at hockey games, like when they've won like the World Series or whatever, like he's he's like there prominently. And it's like, yeah, we won this together. And it's it's, like Mm -hmm. he's like from a totally different industry, but but, yeah, no, it's cool. cool. It seems like it's a very passionate uh, place, and that certainly comes across in sporting events and, and entertainment and stuff.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There, I mean, no matter what sport you like, Chicago is a great city for you because we have it all. Well, just about.
0: What's the biggest life lesson that you've learned so far?
1: <sighs> That's a great question. Uh, I would say that life is beautiful and it's also tragic. And the most important thing to think about is balance and if you find balance in your life then you are on the path towards a fulfilling life at the very least and you know happiness shouldn't be what we're aiming for because there's another side to happiness there's like, you don't know happiness unless you also know sadness. Um, mm. And so those things should be appreciated. Both of those emotions, in my opinion, should be appreciated. But balance is is the key.
0: Thanks for sharing. As we draw things to a close, do you have any upcoming projects or some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? <sighs>
1: Well, you can follow me on Instagram because I am always doing some interviews with different authors. I try to uh, get topics that are topics that can be universal to everyone. Yesterday, I talked to a woman uh, named Leah Grimaldi about forgiveness, um, and she took me through the Reiki uh, healing method for forgiveness, which was really interesting. I talked to another author last week about manifestation and the law of attraction. Um, So we've been exploring a lot of interesting topics on my IG, so give me a follow there. I'm Christina Perro writes, it's Christina with a K. Maybe Christian can put this in his like little bio about (laughs) about the podcast. But other than that, just uh, you should read my book. I think that it's a book that, while it is about women, I think that it's a book that universally, um, can be universally applicable, and I think that, I hope that my lessons learned throughout the year, this, like, year of chaos and year of trauma, year and a half, um, during the pandemic, I think that I have packaged some of those life lessons up into Lucky. And so I would just highly recommend it.
0: Well, excellent. Thank you so much uh, for being on the show and and sharing everything with us. And uh, yeah, all the best.
1: Thank you, Christian. Have a great one.
0: And to everyone listening to the Christian Reef podcast, be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.